Hey L2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Today's reading is from from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to church this morning. Um, one announcement that we didn't really talk about this morning was the, uh, the Gotham Fellowship here for 2016 and 17 started over the weekend. Uh, congratulations to you guys and good luck. Um, you're going to need it. Uh, yeah. I actually think Gotham is probably the finest. Uh, we used to have a seminary here, full-fledged seminary for seven years. Um, but I, I don't know if we've ever done anything that pulls together who we are and what L2 is trying to do in this city like Gotham. And so hopefully over the next couple months you'll get to meet some of the, uh, the, the people that are in the fellowship and get to hear what they're doing. I think it's an amazing, amazing program. <clears throat> but again, welcome to church. Um, we're going to jump, just go ahead and jump in. Um, what you heard is a section of verses from the book of Philippians that belongs to this series we've entitled Intentional Joy. Um, this sermon today is actually dealing with, I think, one of the most difficult things that we all face. Um, It's just uncertainty. For those of you that suffer from anxiety, which I know a number of you do, um, I I think that this is going to have just a powerful, powerful message for you. Um, Throughout this series, what I've been asking you is the question that if you believe it's possible that, that, that your levels of joy and happiness that you experience from day to day, they have almost nothing to do with your external circumstances. And if that's possible, that when, you, when you're in situations where you don't have the joy you would want, the happiness that you want, um, is it also possible then that you have no one else to blame but yourself? You see, the correlation of those two points I think is substantial, and I think it kind of cuts to the nerve for some of us that live almost day to day, week to week, month to month, even year to year, 
and we actually experience very little joy. It seems almost as if life has been ground down to some sort of a mechanistic process that we just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps over and over again. Um, in this series, we're considering the fact that happiness actually has far less to do with our external circumstances than we might imagine. And because of that, we have to be very intentional and intelligent about making the internal changes that are necessary for us to discover it. And if it can be discovered, if it can be maintained, if it can be cultivated, then we need to be doing that. Instead of just sitting on the sidelines complaining that we don't have the happiness and joy that either we once had or perhaps see in others that we've never had at all. Now, today, as I've said, we're going to be dealing with one of the most difficult issues, I think, in this whole series, is the issue of uncertainty. What do you do when an outcome is completely up in the air? How do you handle it? How do you get through it without it unnerving you to the very core of your being? Now, to do that today, we're going to consider the joy and the uncertainty that we see in this text, and we're going to look at it alongside some of the research that's being done today about uncertainty. And then lastly, we're going to look at Paul's example to see if there's anything that we can learn that might show us the application of this. It might give us some instruction as to how we can actually change some of the aspects of our lives that we might experience joy and happiness, more of it, when we're facing uncertainty. So let's look at this first point. When you examine this, the text in this, it's very interesting that you see both joy and uncertainty side by side here. And we're in the third section of the letter, and we capture this next kind of snapshot of joy that Paul mentions. And this glimpse of it in this particular situation is explained in the midst of circumstances that had no clear outcome to them at all. Now, when you start by looking at the uncertainty, you, you begin to see that Paul, he faced two different strands of uncertainty in his thinking. Starting in verse 19 and 20, the first, the first represents uncertainty that was kind of lodged in the external circumstances around him. In other words, he was under house arrest in Rome. He was awaiting a trial um, with the Emperor Nero, who was at that time progressively insane. And he didn't know whether he was going to be beheaded as a result of that trial or whether he was going to be just set free to live his, get on and live, live on with the rest of his life. And so that's the first part of this, that... that he, he begins to say, I, I really don't know for sure. There's some intimation as we look further in these verses that he was inclined to believe a certain way, but the ultimate outcome was far from certain in anyone's mind. But what's interesting is that you begin to see that, that his uncertainty regarding that decision, in spite of that, he's still confident that the situation is working towards an outcome that was going to be good for him whether he lived or died. Ultimately, it shows that he remained steadfast in his belief that God had not kind of forgotten about him, that this wasn't a circumstance that somehow was relegating him to the margin of God's love and concern. Instead, he's able to say that this deliverance of me, whether it's a liberation that comes through my death so that I can go and spend 
this next life with Jesus, or whether it's the liberation that comes from me being set free to help you. He said, I don't know what it is. And so this first part of it, you see in verse 19 and 20, is an external kind of uncertainty that was very besetting. It would be, it, it, literally be like sitting on death row, waiting for some sort of an appeal or some sort of a decision to be handed down. Now, the second part we see in verse 21 to 24, in the second form of the uncertainty that he faces, is very internal. And based upon his confidence that God was working the situation towards his deliverance, whichever way that looked, he, his uncertainty is expressed in the fact that he didn't really know which outcome he wanted. And so this one's very internal. And the verses explain the fact that he says, I can actually know with confidence that my deliverance is at hand, whatever that means to God. And yet, when I look and survey these two outcomes, I'm, he uses this term hard-pressed, which is, is a really complicated term, and it, it, it carried the idea of a person being so hemmed in that they literally had no way to wiggle, no way to move at all. And that's what he's talking about. When I consider these two outcomes being liberated by my death so that I can move on to spend eternity with my Savior, or whether they turn loose these shackles and they say, go home. He said, I am just completely stuck between these two opinions. I don't know which to choose. And so it's very interesting that in those brief couple of verses, he shows the whole spectrum, the whole gambit of uncertainty that we have ever faced, whether it's uncertainty that's kind of rolling over us based on acceptance to a program or completion of a, a program that we're involved with, the, the outcome of a relationship, the birth of a child, the transfer of a, a vocational pursuit, and it's not in our hands. It, it, the spectrum literally goes from that end to one in which he says, I am so stuck, I can't even wiggle. I don't, I don't even know what to choose. And so the uncertainty is just writ large in these verses, both from the outside as well as the inside. And that causes us then to move to this next idea of joy. The joy that we see in these verses actually begins in verse 25 and 26. And the joy he expresses is in regard to his belief that the Philippians they would indeed profit from his continued ministry among them. And in verse 24, when he says, I'm convinced of this, it's pointing back to the fact that he knew they needed him. And he says, I am absolutely convinced of your need of me. Now, that might give you some, a little bit of insight of the, the joy that comes from a person who has literally given everything in his life to the service of other people. And in doing so, he's able to come to a point that he says, I know that if this works out for you, I'm going to be happy. Your joy is my joy, is essentially what he's saying. And it's a very interesting angle. And he was inclined to, because of that, being convinced of that, he, he's basically saying, I'm inclined to believe that I'm going to be released because of you. And so 
Even though he's stuck internally, this doesn't remove any of the uncertainty or the perplexity of him choosing which way to go. He had some sort of an inclination, but it was still far from certain. Now, when you move on to the second aspect of his joy, we see it in verse 27 and 28, where the context continues to show that Paul is applying himself to the very thing that he said would produce joy in them and in him. He begins by exhorting their faith in regard to three different situations. First, that they would be actually living lives that are consistent with their faith in Jesus in verse 27a. Second, that their community would be manifested in a singleness of mind, a singleness of spirit that would actually cause them to really fight intentionally to stand side by side. Now, each of you should be able to know what that means because over the years we've all had relational circumstances that enable us to kind of start drifting apart. And Paul's saying, I am exhorting you to fight, to fight that. You need to be working through the disagreements you've got so that you would have this singleness of mind. You need to be debating and discussing those issues with one another so that you can maintain the unity of your mind. And the unity of your spirit would be the expression of all your energies and your enthusiasm and effort so that the result of that, the culmination of your community is that you're literally standing shoulder to shoulder for the same cause, for the same reason. Now the third exhortation has to deal with the fact that that they would be able to do that without fear. Now, it's really interesting if you compare this to the idea of what Moses is dealing with in Deuteronomy 20, because in Deuteronomy 20, there's this whole list of exceptions to military service that God gives to Moses. And he says, when you go to war, you need to realize I'm going to be fighting on your behalf. But to the man that has a new wife, tell him to go home. To the man that has a new piece of property or new field or something, tell him to go home. And lastly, he gets into these verses and he said, you need to ask anyone standing there. If their heart is melting, tell them to go home. Because if they don't, they're going to melt the hearts of everyone else. And so that tells you that fear is contagious. Fear has this toxic way of infecting us from one person to the next, more contagious than any disease you could possibly imagine. And God's preventing the, the rank and the file of Israel's armies from that happening. Well, Paul is praying for that in a different way. He's praying for the side-by-side -side focus, the side-by-side -side, uh, nurturing and this cultivation of that kind of fortitude amongst them. He says, I, I would just ask that that would be that. But he said, I'm asking that it, you could do it without fear, which is a very, very interesting take. And it leads us perhaps the two most curious verses in verse 29 and 30, when you first read them, you're, you, you'd say, well, why would he say that? Why would he say that it's been granted to you to believe and to suffer? That seems almost as if someone would want to avoid believing. Like, if I believe, you're going to hurt me? And see, that would be kind of the first natural kind of flat reading of the verses. But when you step back you begin to realize this is an amazing encouragement because he's saying not only did God grant to you the capacity to believe in Jesus, he also gave you the capacity to suffer whatever he requires of you. Now, there's a lot of people that have a theory of sin and temptation that they take from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says that there's no temptation taken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful along with 
the temptation to provide a way to escape that you might be able to bear up under it. And they automatically deduce from that is that God will never give me more than I can bear. That's not what that context is saying at all. In the previous verse, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, it says, you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And so those verses aren't saying God is never going to give you more than you can carry, but these are. What he is saying here is that you need to be able to do this without fear, knowing that God who gave you the capacity to believe in Jesus is also the one that gave you the measure to suffer whatever he requires of you. An amazing consolation to a group of people that he is showing them the example of how to live and to deal with uncertainty. And so, amazing set of verses, without question. Now, what is some of the contemporary research that we're seeing today being done saying about, about this? I think when you begin to take a step back and you look at that, it, it's, I, I think it's going to be shocking to some of you. Now, as we've seen throughout this series, that there's a vast body of research today on happiness and joy that's indicating you'll never obtain them by pursuing them directly. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when you look at the research regarding uncertainty, that it's equally counterintuitive. In other words, what you need to do when you face uncertainty doesn't naturally pop up in your mind. Now, Oliver Berkman authored a book. He's, a, uh, he's from England. He authored a book called The Anecdote, and I love the subtitle. It's called uh, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And it, it, you can laugh. I, I, I laugh like crazy. And he names a whole bunch of people that I can't stand listening to either. Um, and so this book was written probably just for me, but I, I'm twisted enough to think most of you will get something out of it too. But I want you to listen to some of his conclusions. He says this. He said, behind all of the most popular approaches to happiness and success is the simple philosophy of focusing on things going right. But ever since the first philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome, a dissenting perspective has proposed the opposite, that it's our relentless effort to feel happy or to achieve certain goals that is precisely what makes us miserable and sabotages our plans, and that it is our constant quest to eliminate or to ignore the negative, insecurity, uncertainty, failure, sadness that causes us to feel so insecure anxious, uncertain, or unhappy in the first place. Research points to an alternative approach to happiness, a negative path to happiness that entails taking a radically different stance towards those things most of us spend our lives trying hard to avoid. This involves learning to enjoy uncertainty, embracing insecurity, and becoming familiar with fail failure. In order to be truly happy, it turns out that we might actually need to be willing to experience more negative emotion, or at the very least, to stop running quite so hard from it. You see, Berkman is getting at something that we've seen, this constant thread that's emerging from all this psychological research, is that by pursuing happiness and joy directly, you're losing it it can outrun you every single time. And the way it's discovered, the way it's captured and maintained in the lives of people, both Christians as well as non-Christians, is very, very different. Now, he goes on to explain that research that is presently coming out of Germany is beginning to affirm the conclusions of the, the Stoics. 
Now, the Stoics were a school of philosophy that originated in Athens a few years after Aristotle died, and they stressed the negative. Now, I am, by using this and appealing to this research, I'm not advocating Stoicism. I'm just telling you that there's something that was known a long time ago by many, many people, both Christians as well as non-Christians, that somehow got lost in the process. And Berkman goes on to stress that the Stoics understood that most of us go through life under the delusion that situations or events that make us sad, anxious, or angry are external to us. The very premise of this study. He uses the examples of becoming upset at the news of a loved one be, being ill. However, if you look closely at the experience, you'll be forced to conclude that the external event is not negative, as it seems. This is what he says. He says, indeed, nothing outside your, your own mind can properly be described as negative or positive at all. What actually causes suffering are the beliefs you hold about those things. A relative's illness is only bad in view of your belief that it is a good thing for your relatives not to be ill. Millions of people, after all, get ill every day. We have no belief whatsoever about most of them and consequently don't feel distressed. You see, that is a remarkable, a remarkable statement because he's not saying there's no such thing as negativity or positivity. He's just saying when you actually thoroughly begin to consider your situation, you, you have to begin to consider that you're making it negative. Most of the time, it's your pre-conclusions, your presuppositions that have disposed you in a certain way that if it doesn't go that way, it's already a foregone conclusion that you're going to be unhappy. Now, based on that, he says there's two amazing benefits that come into your life when you actually kind of learn to think differently. He said, number one, it helps maintain value and happiness. So the Stoics often counseled actively dwelling on worst-case scenarios, staring them in the face. And so, again, I'm not saying, okay, you need to go home today and you need to take a piece of paper and write, write out whatever situation is causing you anxiety, whatever situation is fraught with insecurity. You need to just plan the absolute worst-case scenario. That sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? It doesn't sound at all like something you would hear at a Tony, uh, Tony Robbins seminar because he would never say that. Um, so there's something in this that I think is, is, is very interesting. And, but he's saying that, that the Stoics said that because ceaseless optimism makes for a tremendous shock when things don't turn out the way we were hoping. But imagining the worst also brings its benefits. Psychologists have long agreed in what, what has been called um, hedonic adaptation or habituation. And what that means is that you can't hold yourself in any one place. And so if something good comes into your life, it becomes old very quickly. And your level of happiness, like water, finds its level almost exactly back where it was before. But even if something terrible comes into your life, this is where Seligman did some research. Uh, there was a study that came out of Stanford as well that showed that a group of people that lost the use of their legs in an accident and a group of people who won the lottery 
after two years, had these same forms of happiness, the same levels of happiness. That's hedonic adaptation. And we've known this for thousands of years. We've known that, that things become too familiar to us. And so what he's saying that the Stoics captured something is that by considering the worst-case scenario and contemplating the fact that you can't hold on to anything makes you cherish the fact that you've got it for another day. Instead of just assuming that you'll always have it until the day that you're startled when it's gone. And because of that, it tends to thwart habituation or hedonic adaptation. That hedonic treadmill is something else is also called. And that's an amazing reality. And so all of the exhortations like the Psalm of Moses, that's the Song of Moses that's captured in Psalm 90, where he says, teach us to number our days that our heart might be filled with wisdom. Or the repeated exhortations in the New Testament that says that you should remember that your life is like a flower in the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And so Christianity speaks in many ways in this very same vein of thought. And so by contemplating things from a negative perspective, you actually can extenuate your value of things and your happiness. The second thing it does is help to, it helps prevent anxiety. And th this is more subtle, and it's, but I think it's arguably more powerful. Consider how we normally seek to kind of calm our worries when, when, when uncertainty creeps in. We want reassurance. And I can tell you as a counselor how badly people come in and they want me to tell them it's going to be okay. For some reason, there's, I know many of you are involved in the medical field, and I, I, I know firsthand from several of you that there's very few things that are quite as difficult as sitting in a room with a person that's about to die, and some preacher or some well-meaning Christian walks into the room and says, this is going to be okay. I've had a number of you that are in the medical field tell me how irritating that is. And it's not because that person is hoping or has some sort of a faith or inclination. It's almost as if they're coming in and almost capriciously wiping away all the expertise and all the evidence. It's not to say that there aren't situations where God heals people and they actually get up and go home when everybody thought they were going to die. But that's not what I'm talking about. There's a way that we try to diminish our anxiety by reassurance. And, but if you look at it closely, if you ever reassure someone, you begin to find out that reassurance takes almost constant maintenance. So if you reassure someone today, next week, you're going to have to reassure her again. Because it's something that is constantly moving in our minds. Now, what Berkman goes on to say, I think is really quite interesting. But... He says, worse than that, reassurance can actually exacerbate anxiety. When you reassure your friend that the worst-case scenario he fears probably won't occur, you inadvertently reinforce his belief that it would be catastrophic if it did. You are tightening the coil, he says, of his anxiety, not loosening it. And so there's something about us being entirely committed to positivity. In, in almost like avoiding like a plague anything that could be negative. And the Stoics weren't like that. They, they were stressing tranquility that comes from almost an indifference to the outcome.
Now, some of you as Christians probably want to push away from that. But can we in these verses? It seems almost as if Paul is not indifferent in the sense that he could care less which outcome comes from his own life, but he's okay with either one, intensely okay with either one. Now, I think when we step back from this and we see these two points, I think we have to admit that things very rarely turn out exactly the way we want, positively. But they almost never go as wrong as they possibly could either. Very few of us ever experience the absolute worst scenario. In other words, losing a job is probably not going to result in you spending the, life, the rest of your life on the street as a prostitute. That's probably not going to happen. Losing a relationship that's kind of hanging, tipping, or hanging by a thread right now is probably not going to be a result in you living in some horrific loneliness the rest of your life. That's probably not going to happen. And so being able to say, I can actually imagine things not quite as bad, you're pushing through a fog that comes into a mind of a person that typically gets beset in uncertainty with anxiety because she or he is thinking about outcomes that are not realistic. And what the Stoics were saying is that when you actually think about them deeply, it's going to dissipate some of that terror that you constructed in your mind. It's going to deconstruct into reality a situation that you can deal with Instead of you being terrified, horrified, week after week, month after month, some of you for year after year, because you still don't know. Berkman said this, he said, spend time vividly imagining exactly how wrong things could go in reality, and you'll often turn bottomless, nebulous fears into finite, manageable ones. Happiness reached by a positive, via positive thinking is fleeting and brittle. Negative visualization generates a vastly more dependable calm. So here again, like we've seen throughout this series, there's an amazing body of research that affirms a significant correlation between uncertainty and our happiness, and even to the point that there's a sort of interdependence. Like it's like a dance that they have to do together to the extent that you really can't possess one without the other. You can't really have happiness without walking through uncertainty. So let's take a step back and look at Paul's example. What are some practical things that you can actually do today to say, I'm, I'm the anxious one. I've been on meds, I've tried everything, I've done my diet, I've, done, you know, I've tried to move, I've tried to change vocations. You know, I put my kids in different schools because it was just grinding me to powder. If you're that person, what can you do to actually begin to face uncertainty? I think there's two things that we see from Paul's examples. That Number one, he actually embraced it. He embraced his uncertainty. It's obvious that he was willing to acknowledge and to deal with external, external circumstances that had no visible outcome as well as the internal dissidence that would cause him to say, I really don't know what to choose. I'm stuck between these two opinions. I don't, I, I don't know what to do. He was willing to embrace both of them. And secondly, we see that in spite of his embrace of the uncertainty, he didn't turn loose of his faith. See, I think that's the key for some of you, is that what you see is that Paul demonstrated 
an example that was pushing in to what he believed. It caused him, he, he said in verse 20, he said, with full courage now, as always, will, I will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, in verse 20. He is holding on to something that, if you could draw a picture, he's looking into darkness. He's standing there and he's looking into a situation that has no clarity to it whatsoever, but his faith is putting an outcome in it that he is able to hold on to. And so there, he's able to hold both of them. He's able to embrace the uncertainty on one hand. On the other hand, his faith is shining into it, allowing him to perceive something that he believes to be true. And so he isn't just drifting, listlessly bobbing on an ocean of just being ground to powder because of his uncertainty. Now, this begs this question. Is Paul's example in these verses just an isolated example, or is it normative for the Christian life? I think that's the question I would want to answer if I were you. Because is it possible that Christianity is prescribing this to you? That you cannot be a Christian without learning how to do that. Face uncertainty and project your faith onto the darkness that you cannot see into. I believe it is. I believe it's necessary. I believe it's normative. I believe if you haven't experienced, there's probably something wrong with your faith. Now, the reason I say that is because Jesus said it was. Now, in Matthew's gospel, and ironically, the first sermon that he preached in public, the first huge one, in the middle of it, it it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5 through chapter 7. So in chapter 6, we're right in the center of it. And so the centerpiece, the apex of that sermon in verse 25 to 33 is dealing with uncertainty. And he concludes in verse 34, he says this, therefore, because of everything that he said, he said, you don't know what you're going to wear. You don't know what you're going to eat. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, James, who is called old Camelies, he was the, he was the half-brother of Jesus, that he rebuked Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. But when he wrote the book of James, about 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection, this is what he said. He said it even clearer. In James chapter 4, and verse 13 and 14, he said, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what you're, you, don't know, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while. And then vanishes. You see, both Jesus and James affirm this thing. That Christianity brings you to a point that it, Solomon said the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 17. He said that God has put things in a place that men can find it out. In verse eight, seven, uh, chapter, seven, chapter 8, verse 17, he said, even if a wise man says, I know, he doesn't know. It's impenetrable, this darkness, that he has suspended his purpose and all of the, th the reason that he does everything. You can't know. But there's a reason that you should be able to say, I can trust his character. And I can project into that something that this is all working together for a goodness. Even if I can't see it, I can trust him. Now, Maria Popova, I think that's the way, forgive me if I said it wrong, but... 
Maria Popova, in her article, she wrote this article, listen to this title, Stop Overplanning. The psychology of why excessive goal-setting limits our happiness and success. That's a heck of a title. And this is what she says. She proposes that running from uncertainty is the cause of our anxiety. This is what she says. Embracing uncertainty may, may be the cure for our epidemic of anxiety and the root of the creative spirit. It remains an art enormously challenging and uneasy making for the human psyche. Instead, we try to abate discomfort of uncertainty by making long-term plans and obsessing over every, every day to-do list. Is that you? Is that the way that you abate the terror of uncertainty is by overplanning? I had to admit that I think I've done that very thing. Now, based on that, Popova says this. Uncertainty is where things happen. It is where the opportunities for success, for happiness, for real living are waiting. I believe she's essentially affirming what Paul has shown us in this, in this text. Embracing uncertainty without losing your faith as opposed to doubling down on our illusions, our illusions of control. I want to ask you one last question before I'm done. Were you ever in control? Now think about it just a moment. All those times that you weren't anxious because you believed you were in control, were you in control? Or was your illusion of control misleading you? See, I think it's that. All those times that you had peace because you thought you could control the outcome, you were wrong. You abated the danger of the uncertainty by causing yourself to fall asleep. You see, what Christianity says is what I've oftentimes said, it's pushing you into your life. It's demanding of you a thought process about a world that doesn't belong to you. A world that is being governed and controlled perfectly by a Savior that says He loves you and will save you. And all the illusion of your control ever did is lull you to sleep. That's what hangs in the balance. You see, in the end, to increase our levels of joy and happiness, some of us are going to have to stop running away from the circumstances of our lives that we have no control over. And we're going to start having to face them while holding on to our faith. And if we don't, our illusion of joy and happiness in those circumstances will never last. It will always fade. It will always cheat you. That, I thought, was pretty amazing. The convergence of all of this research into something that was written 2,000 years ago by a man who sat in chains wondering if he'd live or die. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. 
How should we pray with regard to uncertainty? Great question. Two for one, again. Should we pray only that God's will be done or pray for the outcome we hope for? Yes. <laughs> Next question. No, I'm thinking. <laughs> if uncertainty is essential to the Christian life, which I hope I just showed you, and I could show you many other places, where you have the very character of Joshua exposed in a single statement where he says, choose you this day who you're going to serve. He brought all of the Jews, several million of them, to a line. He says, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? And I know some of you get this. I know your faith so well that this is where you re-enlist, right? This is where you sign up again, saying, I, I don't know anything else I can believe like this because that's me. I can't tell you how many times I've committed my life to Jesus. Maybe 10,000. I don't know. Because there's so many times that he brings me to that line. And he says, what are you going to believe about this going forward? And I know enough to know what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 50 and verse 10. He says, who among you fears the Lord? It has no light to him. Let him rely on his God. That hardly makes sense. That you have a person that's trusting in God, he fears God, and yet there's no light. And he simply says, trust your God. And then he, he can contrast that with the next guy in verse 11. And he says, let you who kindle a fire, which is basically a person coming to the same darkness and you hear the strike of a match. He said, go ahead and light your own torch and you're going to lie down in torment. Go ahead and try to figure this out on your own. And God will thwart you. And we know that. Those of us that have known Jesus for years, we know that. Deep inside of our being, every fiber of us knows, I can't win if I fight God. I can't win. And so when you face, how should we pray when we, with regard to uncertainty? God knows that you don't know. So tell him you don't know. If you don't know what to do, don't act like you do. This is one of the sta statements that I always have framed because I've done so much counseling. I am so thankful that God never requires us to act like we know when we don't any more than he allows us to act like we don't know when we do. You, did you get that? There's peace in knowing that God allows us to act like we don't know. And Paul did not know. A writer of 13 books in the New Testament did not know. He didn't know what was going to happen externally, and he didn't even know himself enough to determine which way he wanted it to turn out. That's okay. And so we can pray with uncertainty in, a just, in the admission that, God, you have brought me to a circumstance that as I look into it, it is murky, it is dark, it is confusing, and I don't know what to pray for. Now, should we pray only that God's will be done or pray for the outcome we hope for? I don't know. If you're praying through the Lord's Prayer, you kind of have to do that. Because the, 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 the first petition is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're reverencing God. And then the next petition is, Thy will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. So you're saying, God, what I want. It's almost like you're praying the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but it's not my will. 
I know, I, I'm feeble. But at the same time, we're supposed to let our prayer and our requests be made known to God. And so as a child, and this is where I often take that disposition in my own prayer, to say, God, I want your will to be done, but I can tell you as a feeble man that knows very little, I can ask you that these are the desires of my heart. I can ask you, I, I know that you have brought about a birth in this child, but these circumstances, they don't, I, I would ask that you would intervene. And I can do that with humility, trusting the character of God at the same time. And there's tension in that, I know. Some of you are probably frustrated that I can't be more clear about it, but I think that's the way we have to honor what God has told us in his word. That's all I got. Next question. Oh. That was two anyway, so I only got 33%. That was like light beer, so. All right. Okay, some of you get that later. Um, let's go ahead and pray. We're going to get ready for communion. Our communion here at L2 is open. That means if you're a Christian, examine yourself and partake of the communion. First, it's, a, it's an external testimony to the rest of us that you believe in Jesus. Secondly, it's a process that you're expecting God to attend. You're expecting His Spirit to richly and deeply bless you in a very powerful way. So don't pass it up. Don't pass it up. If you're not a Christian, don't do it because you're telling us something that's not true. But if you are, we pray that you would. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that these the profundity of what Paul wrote in just a few glances of a pen on a parchment thousands of years ago, they would speak deeply to where we're living. Because there's not a single one of us that doesn't have to admit that we face uncertainty. And those who won't admit it or don't believe they faced uncertainty are actually refusing to believe other things you've said. That we... We presumptuously say we're going to do this. We presumptuously think that this is what we're going to do. Instead of saying, if it's the Lord's will. Where we're willing to completely surrender to you. So Father, help us in this. I know that this is one of the amazingly difficult things and challenges that we face day in and day out. So help us to understand it well. I pray during this time of communion that you would attend our examination of ourselves, our commitment of our lives to you. I pray that your spirit would attend, attend it in, a, in an amazing way, in kind of a mysterious way, to give us strength, wisdom, and courage for what lies ahead. We thank you for these things today, for we ask them in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 